So this week we're going to continue our look at stories from the Bible that revolve around tables, eating together. And this story comes in Luke chapter 7. It starts in verse 36 when Jesus is invited to a meal at the house of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. But before we get there, Luke puts an interesting bit of context in the verses right before this story. In, in verse 33, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he says this, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, well, he has a demon. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of toll collectors and sinners. Jesus is referring to the ways that both he and John the Baptist have violated social conventions, although in completely opposite ways. (laughs) Every society, every culture has certain norms, the the way that it is appropriate for someone to act, the things it's appropriate for someone to do, and when it is appropriate to do them, and where it is appropriate to do them. Also, there are norms around what you owe to your family, or your obligation to friends, or to your employer, or to strangers. Again, every society has these norms, these conventions, and there are positives and negatives to that. The main positive is that there isn't chaos, and there's not people getting mad at each other over misunderstandings unnecessarily. One of my favorite examples of this is one Meredith encountered when she was studying abroad in Costa Rica. One of the people she met there was fascinated by one of our driving norms, one of the things he had seen, I think, on TV from our culture. And he said, there, there, there's two lines of cars and, and then just one. What, what do you call that? And Meredith kind of scratched her head like, there's, there's two lines of cars and then just one? Oh, uh, a merge? Yes, he said, yes, a merge. How does that happen? How does a merge happen? I mean, it just kind of does, doesn't it? We've, we've just kind of agreed that when there's two lines of cars, we let one go from one line and then one from the other and then the first again. And it, it just kind of works. It's a social convention that allows things to go smoothly. Unless you're driving in Chicago where people just speed up to intentionally block you from merging because, I don't know, lack of vitamin D or something. But that's a different sermon. There are positives, the point is, to having social conventions. But there are also negatives. Jesus' words we just read are him saying, you all keep accusing me of rejecting social conventions. And the story that we're about to read is basically Luke's response to that accusation. The response being, guilty as charged. Jesus doesn't reject all conventions, of course, but we should pay attention to the ones he does reject and why. So the story we are going to dive into starts by saying, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. This already signals to us that we are entering into a house that has very particular social conventions and very particular morality. The Pharisees show up a lot in the Gospels, often but not always as villains, and they were a group of high status and power that placed great importance on holiness and ritual purity. They strictly followed Torah, and they expected everyone else to as well, if they wanted to be seen as acceptable, of course. And I'll go into more detail on why they were like this in the Backdrop podcast this week, because it's easy to kind of caricature the Pharisees as these cartoonishly evil figures, which isn't really what's going on. 
But it can boil down to this. They thought that if they strictly followed Torah, if they kept themselves as religiously clean as possible always, not only when they were entering the temple, which is what the law usually says, but always, then God would accept them. God would want them. They looked around and saw that things were not going right for the people of Israel. And their conclusion, which is not unreasonable, I mean, there are passages from the Old Testament that would lead you to think something like this. Their thought, their conclusion was, we need to be more holy. And then things will start going right again. Then God will want us. It's funny, isn't it, how their conventions make themselves out to be the good guys? How their morality and their holiness rules define themselves as the ones that God would want? That all these other riffraff who can't or won't live up to our conventions, you know, riffraff like women or the poor or the sick, they're not only inferior in the eyes of society. No, no, no. They're inferior in the eyes of God. Social conventions often serve the powerful. They put boundaries around those with power and money and education making sure that not too many of those other people can join the club. Well, it's not our money and power that makes us special. Oh, no, it's, it's that we're more civilized. We're more upright than those others. Those are the social conventions that Jesus, that the New Testament, consistently rejects. The ones that make people believe that they are better than those others. But anyhow, Jesus gets invited to this dinner party, and things get interesting there. It says this, And a woman known in the city as a sinner, and we can safely read prostitute in here, known in the city as a prostitute, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet. He would have been reclining at the table with his feet away from the table, so she's kind of standing around the outside of the room here. So she's behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. This woman is a prostitute, known by the others in the room as such. She is a sinner in their eyes. She is almost by definition poor because who else would be doing the line of work that she is doing? although she has scraped up enough money to own this expensive jar of ointment that she uses then to anoint Jesus's feet. By the conventions and morality of the Pharisees, in whose house she is now standing, she is shameful. Her entrance is almost like the entrance of an infectious disease to the room. This, this disease of shame and sin, you wouldn't want to get too close to someone like that. You might catch the disease. Now, it might seem strange that she's allowed to enter the room at all. Our dinner parties in our culture don't tend to be like that. But in those days, when the wealthy put on a party like this with honored guests and conversation, it was kind of a quasi-public event in some ways. Although it would certainly not be common for one of the public to approach and touch a guest like this. It is shocking that she would have had the courage to do that. And also shocking that Simon the host does nothing to stop it. It's our first clue that despite his invitation, Simon has serious reservations about this Jesus guy and whether he really is from God. 
In fact, the actions this woman is doing, we need to pause on a little because there's kind of a cultural gap here for us. Letting down her hair and rubbing Jesus's feet would be somewhat like if a woman today facing the same problem, needing to dry feet off, if she had taken off her shirt in the middle of a crowded room and used it to dry them and then proceeded to massage the feet while topless. To everyone else in the room, this would have looked erotic. It would have been a sexual act. And so it should not be surprising that Simon finds that his suspicions are confirmed. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, that is if he were actually from God, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. Jesus said, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, think something like $50,000, and the other 50 denarii, think $5,000. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Just listen to that response. I suppose Simon is done with Jesus. So Jesus turns to him and says, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus turns the tables. He lays out in explicit detail the ways that Simon has failed as a host. Or, at least, if Simon had intended to honor Jesus, he has failed as a host. But he didn't. Simon wasn't sure about Jesus. And to show Jesus honor, which is what performing those social conventions, water for the feet, a kiss on the cheek, oil for his head, they would have signified honor on the part of the host being given to the guest. And that would have put Simon in jeopardy. If he were to show honor to someone who did not deserve that respect, then he himself would have taken a hit in the eyes of his peers. He would have lost status in his culture. So instead, he insults Jesus by basically saying, I don't think you're one of us, but come to dinner, try to prove me wrong, but you won't. I think you're one of them. That is what those actions or lack thereof of Simon's would have conveyed in his culture. Now, we as readers of Luke's gospel know differently. We know that Jesus deserves all that respect and more. And so what we see is a contrast, a contrast between the stingy smugness of Simon, who will not even show Jesus the slightest respect because of the risk to his own reputation, the contrast between that stingy smugness and the extravagance of the woman, the shameful, foolish generosity that she shows. We're meant to see this contrast and wonder, why does this poor, sinful, shameful woman show Jesus extravagant, deserved respect while this Pharisee fails? Jesus continues, 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But to the one to whom little is forgiven, hmm, who could Jesus be talking about here? The one to whom little is forgiven loves little. This woman has experienced the acceptance and forgiveness of God. She has received great, extravagant, foolish love. I mean, how foolish is it to forgive someone like her? But God loves foolishly, generously, and she has felt it. She's experienced it, and it springs right back out of her in foolishly generous ways. Because what could be more foolish than a sinful woman like her daring to approach, touch, (laughs) scandalously touch, an honored guest at a rich Pharisee's house? She knows what they all think of her, but she just can't help herself. But Simon, well, Simon has been forgiven little, at least in his own mind. See, forgiven much and forgiven little, they're all a matter of perception, aren't they? Simon cannot even conceive of being forgiven much because the conventions by which he lives, the moral code of the Pharisees that he adheres to religiously, it's designed to confirm to people like Simon, yep, you are blameless. And so he is incapable of perceiving the vast, extravagant, foolishly generous love of God that's being held out to him. He can't even imagine it. And so all he's left with is this stingy, smug view of the world. Social conventions can blind us to reality like that because the conventions that we value tend to be the ones that we're pretty good at. The ones that confirm, um, in the words of the song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that Meredith sometimes just watches on repeat on YouTube, I'm a good person, yes, it's true. I'm a good person, better than you. We like those conventions. The ones that confirm for us that, that we have got it together. Which is maybe why Christianity over the centuries has often been used or abused by the powerful to confirm their own righteousness. Kind of like this Pharisee is doing in this story. After all, God helps those who help themselves. We can really show our godliness by working hard and living frugally and responsibly filling out our 401k and, you know, other adages that are definitely not in the Bible, but certainly do help us feel superior to those irresponsible, lazy others. There are plenty of positive social conventions, but... Then there are the ones that primarily serve to allow those who adhere to them to smugly shake their head disapprovingly at the riffraff who don't. What's paradoxical about Christianity is that while it has been abused by the powerful over the centuries, it has also consistently appealed to those who don't quite fit the social conventions of their culture and who know they don't fit because you always know when you're falling short in the eyes of others. And those who fall short, whether by being sinful, as it's told in this story, or by what we might be more likely to say in our culture, by being, you know, irresponsible, foolish, or whatever pejorative word one's culture uses to put the riffraff in their place and preserve the status of the powerful, those who fall short and know it have an uncommon ability 
to experience reality, to perceive and receive the reckless, foolishly generous love of God. They can know that they have been loved much, and they can then love greatly in return, showing the same foolish generosity that Jesus has shown to them. And it is important to note here that the lesson of this story from Luke chapter 7 is not that we should try harder to be generous. We should try harder to show foolish generosity to those around us like this woman does. Because Jesus is not saying to the Pharisees, you all need to try harder to be generous. And he does not say that this woman is good because she has done so. Instead, the point is very different. Jesus points out that this woman has experienced love. And so then she shows love. The same is true for us. The path forward is for us to experience, to deeply experience the generosity, the foolish love of God ourselves, and to allow that then to spring back up out of us spontaneously, foolishly, extravagantly. And on Sunday, Meredith led us through an exercise to do just that, to help us to reconnect or to connect with the love of God, the love that has been shown to us to allow us to experience that at a deep level so that it then could spur us on to be generous ourselves. There are any number of practices that can do this, and I would encourage you to make them a regular part of your life, to regularly do whatever it takes to remember, to re-experience that love that God shows to us so that it could become a regular part of your life to show generous love to those around you. The practice that Meredith led us in was a time of confession, because sometimes reconnecting with the sin, the ways that we have fallen short, and the knowledge that God has forgiven and put those away from us, sometimes that can be a great place to start in experiencing God's love. There are other ways, of course, but that is the one that we did together on Sunday. And we closed by hearing these words from Psalm 103 as a form of absolution, as a form of verbalizing the reality of what God, how God responds to our own falling short. So starting in verse six, receive these words about how our God views and treats us. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. God made known God's ways to Moses, God's deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God will not always accuse nor harbor God's anger forever. God does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear God. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. As a parent has compassion on their children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear God. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who do God's bidding, who obey God's word. Praise the Lord, all God's heavenly hosts, you God's servants who do God's will. Praise the Lord, all God's works everywhere in God's dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Amen.